How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Good evening, and welcome to tonight's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California the place where you are in the know. I'm Russ Yarrow, member of the club's Board of Governors, General Manager of Corporate Relations at Chevron, and your chair for the program. Tonight's program is the third in the Commonwealth Club's California Innovation Series sponsored by Chevron. These programs have explored the critical issues facing California. The first program looked at education, and the second explored the prospects for the California economy. Tonight, we have a distinguished and diverse panel that will explore a topic that Chevron is very interested in, the future of energy in California. California's population is expected to grow to 50 million people in the next two decades, an increase of 25%. Providing energy that is reliable, safe, and affordable with less carbon will be one of the most critical challenges facing our state. So our panel has its work cut out tonight. To begin the discussion on our energy future and to introduce our panel, it's now my pleasure to welcome Greg Dalton, founder and host of Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. Thank you. Uh, Thank you, Russ. Welcome, everyone. Um, To my left is Raj Atleru, managing director of Draper Fisher Jurvetson. To his right is uh, Virgil Welch, Special Assistant to the Chairman of the California Air Resources Board. Kathy Reheis Boyd is President of the Western States Petroleum Association. Ralph Cavana is Energy Co-Director at the Natural Resources Defense Council. And Jack Stewart is President of the California Manufacturers and Technology Association. Uh, Thank you all for coming. I'd like to begin with a brief question to each of you. The title of this program is In the Balance, Energy, Economy, and the environment. And just say briefly whether you think that it's the balance is currently is it uh, Goldilocks? Is it just perfect right now? Or do you think that California is, is tilted in one direction that either favors the economy at the risk of the environment or it favors the environment at the risk of the economy? Let's just get a sense of where you think we're out of balance uh, quickly down the panel. Then we'll dive into and discuss how and why and, and what we ought to do about that. So Jack Stewart, is California in balance? I think California's out of balance right now, and I think one of the, re- one of the uh, evidence there is the fact that we're looking at a 12.4% unemployment rate in California right now with one of the most aggressive uh, alternative energy policies in the country. Uh, looking forward, we all know it's going to be more costly for businesses to operate here, and the question is, is how are we going to balance this clean energy future with the requirements of the workforce and the needs to create middle-class jobs in California? Thank you. Ralph Cavana, Calivore, balance. Where Jack and I differ, and we won't differ on everything, is that I don't think that those values are in conflict. I don't think we're trading a healthy economy and a healthy environment off against each other. I think the energy history of California over the last 30 years is how to do both well. A couple of quick illustrations. In California today, we get 60% more economic value out of a unit, a unit of energy than the rest of the country on average. Uh, We have been reducing our energy use per capita for the past 20 years. And so when you ask how are we going to accommodate 15 more people, the answer is we're going to do more of what we've done well better. 
And Jack is right. Nobody is satisfied with 12.4% unemployment. But I don't think the answer is doing less of what we already know we do better than anyone else. I think it's speeding up. Kathy Reheis Boyd, is California in balance or how is it out of balance? Well, I'm actually going to agree with both of my colleagues. Um, and I think you'll find that throughout this discussion, we have a lot of commonality amongst our views. I think we are all out of balance on the economic side of the equation, but I don't think we have to be. I think that there are ways for this state to have a marriage between all three of those elements and that we have to because it is a very transforming time for this state and for this nation. And we have to balance the three of those equally if we're going to sustain it into the future. Virgil Welch. Um, I, I'm going to suggest, actually, that uh, the policies that uh, we as a state and uh, my agency and others uh, are, are currently working on, on energy and transportation, uh, are actually uh, not just what we need to be doing as a state for uh, our energy and our environmental needs. They're actually. Uh, critical to be driving us in the direction uh, towards where the global economy is going, uh, which is clean energy. And so uh, it's not really, I think, it, the question of balance, I, I think, is one where we have to look at this as these are, th these are necessarily, I think, connected. And it's really a question of whether, as California, can we get the policies right so that we can actually drive our economy out front both get the benefits from the clean energy, but also see it as a really critical economic driver. Raj Atluru? Sure. Uh, you know, very similar to Ralph. I don't think it's either or. Uh, California succeeded over the last century because of its innovation. We've innovated in entertainment. We've innovated in flight and defense. We've innovated in communications, PCs, um, internet. And our, bet at our firm is that the next wave of innovation is going to be in the green jobs economy. And if you want to look at numbers, right now, uh, clean tech investing is now the third largest venture capital category, effectively from being zero five years ago. That is in incredible. There was uh, $5.7 billion invested globally in clean tech companies. 60 to 70% of that is in California because the policies are in place to help enable that, this emerging industry. Uh, this is a space that is not going to turn around. We've got an incredible amount of job growth in our underlying portfolio companies. And so I don't think it's either or. I think it's a win-win. I think we can have manufacturing jobs and great job creation from the next wave of innovation. And our belief is innovation is going to come in this sector of the economy. If I, if well, I could just challenge that for a second, and talking about creating those jobs in California and the middle-class jobs in California, I think that's where, where, where I'm going to have a disagreement. Because, you know, actually the venture capital investments, venture capital is more of a, of a financial instrument and an investment instrument rather than an economic development interest from my point of view. And the question is, is how are we going to keep the manufacturing jobs in California? Because I think the, the model for, uh, for, for venture capital is to do the innovation in California, manufacture offshore, and then sell the product back to, Cal back to Californians. And by, by, by doing that, we lose the middle class jobs that have tr traditionally been the, the, the backbone of California's economy in California's middle class. I just want to jump in with one fact that I read recently from, there was a group, uh, Next 10, which came out a with a report recently, which says that 20% of California's green employment is in manufacturing, and apparently that's only 11% economy-wide. So there are, according to them, there are manufacturing jobs in clean tech, and they are perhaps more manufacturing jobs th than, than economy-wide, and then we want 20, to get right. 20% of 159,000 jobs is 15, 16,000 jobs. Yeah, but it's the, or, fastest, or it's the fastest growing part of the economy. Jack, Jack, you got to listen. On this, on this one, there's a ray of hope, which, which I'm daring to, to, to actually expect and anticipate we might get somewhere okay. on. What, 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 the, what you're, you're quoting the, from the California Green Innovation Index, right. 
which is, by the way, available free of charge to members of the Commonwealth Club and everyone else in the world over the internet at this moment. And what the California Green Innovation Index does is take an in-depth look at the emerging clean technology economy in California, all of whose members are going to end up being his members, by the way, within five years, which is going to have a transformative impact, I want to predict to all of you, on the advocacy strategies of the California Manufacturing and Technology Association. And Jack, the really impressive news is that in this sector, it's not huge yet, it's growing fast, but it is more manufacturing intensive than the rest of the economy on average. That's got to be good news. Come it, on, it, smile it, at us. It, it, it is good news if we can keep those jobs in California. Yeah. The trend has not been for that to happen. And you know, there's a lot of anecdotals. I don't know where, I mean, a lot of these numbers, the 159,000, that number is actually a couple years old. It's probably a couple thousand more Governor than that. says it's 500,000. Well, that's, I, that's a different study, and it's a different methodology they use to get to that 500,000. That, by, by, that, by that methodology, if you're a stock boy, and put, take uh, cans out of a box and put them on the shelf and put the box in a recycle ban, uh, box, you're, you're, you're part of the green economy. It's, uh, so yeah, you have to be careful of definitions on what green jobs actually are. Part of it's timing too, Jack. I mean, obviously, we all hope that green technology and green jobs will take off as we all envision. But that's the future. It's not going to be what pulls us out of this recession. And we have to be concerned about the existing jobs and the existing employment. And there are many things that I'm involved with that give me great concern as to the fact that we are not caring about our existing companies and employees that are in the state of California. Kathy, what percentage of your members are, are energy and petroleum companies? What percentage of their employment is sort of in renewables, new energy versus traditional incumbent energy? I don't know that by company or by industry, Sector. but I can tell you that our companies are investing four times the amount of what the federal government invests in alternative and renewable fuels. So we are making the investments for the future, and we will be there to make sure that transformation takes place. But it has to be done in a way that can be sustained and that it doesn't fall on its own economic weight. And where we are going on some of these policies today uh, gives me great concern. And I know we'll get into the low-carbon fuel standard, but... Let's start with uh, Robert Samuelson is a fairly conservative columnist for the Washington Post and Newsweek. And he says, as a column in the recent issue of Newsweek that says, employment goes up and down each year. In the long run, quote, almost all job growth comes from new businesses. It's not whether it's big or small, it's new or old. On balance, job creation and destruction for existing companies zeroes out. Job growth comes from new companies. Jack Stewart, do you agree with that? I think that's, a good, that's probably right. That's, uh, the large companies are actually shrinking in, in, in total employment right now. But, you know, I, I, just, I just heard you know, a story the other day from a company, uh, Blue Fire, which is an alternative energy. They make uh, uh, ethanol. They tried for two years to put an ethanol plant in Lancaster, which they were going to use solid waste biomass from, 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 from the uh, landfill to produce ethanol. Spent $9 million dollars spent two years trying to get a permit in California, could not do it, could not make the numbers work, now have set up a plant, are getting ready to break ground on a plant, the same plant in, in Mississippi, five times the production, took them nine months to get the permit, and they will have five times the production, five times the production out of that plant at, at $3 million versus the $9 million they already spent in California. We have to make it easier for companies to invest here. Right now, companies cannot find the, 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 the economy of investing and manufacturing and producing in California. Roger, you invest a lot of startups. The money comes into California. Is it going to go back out to other states when it comes to building a factory? You know, if the policies and the regulatory environment is not supportive of these companies building their first plant, building their manufacturing plants in California, they'll move elsewhere. 
That's the way it works in every industry. And so that's not different. I think the key for us is where do you find the most innovative scientists, researchers, entrepreneurs, leaders in California is the innovation economy. That's why people come here. And so we don't want to move our companies elsewhere. We'd love them have to be here, local, local to capital, local to you know, the best state for, for their products. Uh, look, some manufacturing jobs will go overseas, but some will stay here. We hire, our companies hire tons of technicians, tons of manufacturing labor. We, we hire lots of construction workers, which we don't talk about because it's a little bit different than Jack, than Jack cares about. But construction and trade job creation in the clean tech economy is enormous. And that's 40% of the 2.2 million jobs in green jobs in the United States are in that area. Those are high-paying, high-quality jobs. And so, you know, we try to have our companies localize their manufacturing here because we like them close to the management team. The management teams are here in California. If I could just, uh, you know, well chime in here quickly. Um, you know, I, certainly you can point to instances where a company, uh, for whatever reason, uh, tried to locate in California and it didn't work out. On the other hand, I mean, you know, we're seeing uh, uh, new uh, solar development uh, currently uh, either in process or recently uh, permitted that, uh, you know, is happening right here in California. And these, I mean, these are the kind of blue-collar jobs that we're talking about. These are people who are, you know, w working to, to both build and maintain and operate these plants. The same thing with the, the NUMI uh, facility down the road here. So I think, I think the suggestion that it's solely, you know, the VC money uh, and the manufacturing and, and the sort of the, the middle-class jobs are going elsewhere uh, is not necessarily true. What troubles me is that we would even have a conversation that it's okay that there's any job that leaves the state with 12.5% unemployment and 2.2 million people out of work. We have got to keep the base we have, and I'm fine with growing into a green technology and transforming to a low-carbon economy. I mean, that's all I think we all are supportive of that. But we cannot lose sight of the fact that we are not in a good state in this, in, in California at this point, and that we need to take care with the jobs that we have. And I can tell you my members um, are making some very difficult choices about where to invest their next dollar. And California could be a lot more business friendly. Aren't we glad, therefore, that one of the unifying policies that California continues to pursue is to have the most aggressive investments in energy efficiency in the country in both existing and new businesses? My favorite part of Chevron is Chevron Energy Solutions, which is one of the nation's leading energy efficiency companies. And its example is illustrative of a whole economy full of similar examples of getting more work out of less energy. That is as potent a job creation strategy as I know of and Kathy and Jack, because of your support, in part, we're better at that than anybody else. And let's not lose sight of it. Yep, you're right. We have the most efficient refineries in the world. And, that's no, and, and, and innovation is critical. And when companies like Chevron do the innovation, that's the way it should happen. What's happening is we're seeing it. it, it we're seeing too much, from my perspective. And I, and I agree with Kathy. I think we all see a clean energy future, a, a non-carbon future. The question is, is, is when do we get there, and how fast do we get there, and at what cost? And if the California taxpayers and the California uh, both business and individual taxpayers, taxpayers and ratepayers are going to help support the investments in these industries, then I think we need to have a clearer understanding of exactly what that's going to mean. Because when you take money, tax money, uh, ratepayer money, fee money from one group of employers and say, we're going to give this to another group of employers to innovate new products, then it's not it going to be a big, very big surprise that those people you're taking the money from are going to be cutting jobs, and those people that are getting the money are going to be creating jobs. So how do, how, how do we make this work without 
disrupting the economy as we know it now because you know, we have, we've, we've lost 634,000 manufacturing jobs in this state over the last decade. That's 34% that's of our industrial workforce has disappeared. Now the question is, my opinion, it's going to be very, very difficult to ever bring that industrial workforce back. But that is the middle class of California. That's where middle class jobs are created when you create wealth and then you share that wealth with, with the workers you have. And the question is, is can, can, we, can, we, can we sustain that model in California or are we getting so far out of, out of, out of, out of reach of that model that we're going to see you know, a service economy here? And I think the, the evidence on a service economy is that the jobs are going to be a lot lower paying jobs than we have in, in, in the industrial economy. I mean, the, the consumer is going to be the ultimate, really, dis, I mean, they're going to decide whether we're successful at this, right? I mean, they wake up every day and they expect to turn their lights on, drive from A to B, and heat and cool their homes affordably. So, you know, we have to continue to provide them adequate, reliable, affordable energy in all of its forms, natural gas, transportation, fuels, electricity, or the, or the program and our vision for the future in this low-carbon economy will not, will not pass. I mean, it will not sustain itself. So I think it isn't when, it's not if, it's when and at what cost. It's the timing of this that becomes very critical. Speaking about costs, uh, California has high utility rates, but it has low bills because of the efficiency that Ralph and others have mentioned. Where if you look at a price of a kilowatt in California, it's high, but when you factor in California's efficiency, and there's, we can talk about policies to drive that efficiency further, Californians and Peter Darby, head of the local utility here and others, would say the bills are lower. The per unit cost is higher, but because of efficiency, the bills are lower. Do you, Kathy, do you see that? I mean, it is a very, we are very efficient. I think California as a state has always been very efficient, and we support energy efficiency totally. Um, we support efficiency in vehicles. It's, it's, you know, conservation and efficiency. Those are the two easy things that we should all be doing, like, in spades. So, yeah, I do agree with that. I am worried, though, as we talk about electricity becoming uh, part of the transportation mix, and when it, we just hosted a conference in San Diego where we called it Connecting the Dots, we bought, brought the automakers in, the utilities in, and the fuel providers. Not only conventional fuel, but alternative and renewable fuels. And we had what I call the real conversation, which is how is this all going to mesh up and work? And if we're going to move to an electricity-driven transportation system, what does that mean to electricity costs in the state? And how are the ratepayers going to feel about that? Especially when there are ratepayers who may not purchase electric vehicles, but yet whose costs may be incurred because of how it's set up throughout the California system. So, you know, I think it's great we have low electricity costs and we're very efficient, but I think we're, we're, we need to be very careful moving into that area. Um, Virgil Welch? Uh, yeah, I just wanted to uh, just sort of uh, go back uh, to the previous discussion, and I, I just wanted to kind of make a point related to, you know, there, there seems to be a discussion uh, that, that, while not explicit, sort of, perhaps implied in this is that, you know, California is out here uh, with these aggressive policies um, that, you know, at least if, if uh, not implemented properly may, um, you know, be cause for concern. And I just wanted to put it in a larger context, which is, you know, there, there are both states and countries that are charging aggressively uh, in, in this direction. Um, and frankly, it's not for environmental reasons in many instances. I mean, China's putting $9 billion a month, a month. Billion with a B. With a B into clean energy. And it ain't because they're great environmental stewards. 
So we know it, they're not. Yeah. It, it's it, you know the, the larger context here is that people are on alert that the economic opportunities are in this direction, and so to 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 think we could just have the luxury to say, well, you know, we're going to sit back and and just hope that that you know. Uh, everything, you know, just settles down. We're going to lose those opportunities. Raj, your company invests in China and India. How do you, how do you see that? I think Virgil's dead on. I think uh, our Chinese clean tech portfolio is growing incredibly fast. All the local provinces are supporting their local local companies in manufacturing of wind components, wind turbines, wind blades, solar panels, you name it. And so that is by far the big drive and push from both central and provincial governments in China is to push the clean or the green tech economy. Um, and we can't lose that race. We don't want to lose that race. That's one of the greatest innovations of this coming century is going to be in how to provide a more uh, clean uh, energy future for this planet. And so that's the race we're in right now with us in China. India is a little bit further behind. But uh, you know, we're, going to, we're, seeing EV car, we're investing in EV car companies in China. We're, we're investors in Tesla here who just uh, took over the NUMI plant. Uh, we believe the electrification of vehicles is happening. It's going to happen very quickly. And I think the consumers will vote. I think they'll vote with their pocketbooks and they'll buy these cars. And so in every phase of this economy, it's a broad sector we're talking about. It's not just energy. It's energy efficiency. It's, building, it's smart building products. It's control products. We've got to be the forefront of all these categories. Uh, we are the biggest consumer of energy, and we should be getting products here, companies built in the United States. Let's get uh, Kathy and, and Jack to say, you know, could the U.S., could California fall behind to China and, and India? I can tell you that my friends at the Air Resources Board would never let that happen. <laughs> so um, we, we, I think really the AB32 and the low-carbon fuel standard are, they have to be the most transforming regulations I think the world has ever seen. And you support uh, those regulations? AB32 is California's climate I will law. never say that they are my favorite regulations, but they are law. And so we are um, obviously going to comply with the law. That's what we do. So we are working very closely with the Air Resources Board on the design of the program so that it can still supply adequate, reliable, affordable fuels to the consumer. So that's the end game. We have to continue to do that. So as we design these programs, which we are in the midst of right now, um, it's very critical that we look at things like, let me give you an example. We have an issue called crude shuffling. And for those of you who know, you have to... It, you have to have crude oil to make gasoline and diesel, jet fuel, and everything else. And so we only have the blessing in California of only having about 38% of the crude oil that we need to supply uh, 43 million gallons of gasoline and 12 million gallons of diesel that California consumes every day. And so the rest of that has to come from somewhere else. And so if we have policies in California that send a signal to someone like our friends in Canada, who are the biggest importers of crude to the United States that their crude is somehow more carbon intensive and needs to go elsewhere, I can tell you China is happy campers ready to invest, and they are investing in that energy source that the United States benefits from. Doesn't mean that Canada shouldn't do things to reduce their climate impact and their, and their carbon footprint. But to have a policy that would shuffle a very solid source of our energy somewhere else because that policy concerns us and it should concern everyone because we do not have the luxury in the United States of having a huge source of our own crude. We, it, it comes from somewhere else. So as we transform into whatever low economy we're, or low carbon economy we're going to become. High efficiency economy. High efficiency economy. Thank you, Paul. That we, we just need to make sure we don't do that in a way that makes us less energy secure. Because our drivers are climate change, energy security, 
I know California in particular, petroleum dependence reduction. But those are very, we have to do that in the global context. So it is a global discussion. And we, we can't just do it in, in California. You know, just bringing the argument a little closer home and, and the comparison a little bit cl closer home is Texas is second only to California in the number of green jobs. The fact is that te Texas doesn't have the massive amount of rules and regulations and laws that California has and the fees and, 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 and taxes that California charges. <coughs> so I think it can happen, and I think it is happening in other places, without this very, what I look at as a very draconian set of rules and regulations mandating what we do. You know, it's going to happen. The question is, is you know, where is it going to happen and how is it going to happen? And if we can't, if we can't keep companies here, somebody mentioned a minute ago uh, the, the, the solar industry and the, the, the construction in solar. Uh, just last week, uh, uh, Power One, uh, Camarillo-based solar company, made a decision to invest in, in Arizona. A couple of a month or so ago, um, um, uh, Amonix, uh, a, a Seal Beach company, did their R&D here. They're invest creating 300,000, 300 jobs in, uh, in in Las Vegas. I mean, it's 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 we we are, we are, we, are, we what we're doing is we're conflicting with ourselves. <laughs> We, we have these great ideas, we're doing this great innovation, but we're doing so in a, in, 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 in a, in a make, allowing the government to, 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 to lay out the rules and the regulations and how we're going to do it. And what's happening is, is those jobs are slipping out of California to, to, to other locations. But, but, but I love Texas versus California comparisons. And I want to I reframe that in a way that Jack will like, because it will help him okay. in his mission of attracting people back out of Texas into California. As a fraction of its state economy, Texas's energy bill is double California's energy bill. I mean, just as a fraction of the state economy, their energy bill is double our energy bill. If we were as inefficient as Texas, we would waste an extra $29 billion a year on energy bills that we can now reinvest in more job-intensive activity here at home. Kathy said something terribly important. She said her members were prepared. I think, let me make sure I've got this right. You think you can meet your, your share of the AB32 targets. They're the law. You're going to get there. And you're going to get there in a way that ensures affordable and reliable fuel supplies for Californians. It's important to note that there are some people on the ballot in California in November who are trying to prevent AB32 from being the law. And I just want to note my hope. I assume this was going to come up at some point in the conversation. And I know Jack disagrees me on, with, with, with me on this one in a rare uh, division among friends. I hope we'll defeat Proposition 23. I hope we'll keep AB 32 on the books, provide the regulatory and legislative certainty that I would submit Kathy's members need in order to make the kind of investments that are going to be required to move us toward a higher efficiency, lower carbon energy future. Uh, and I don't know that we'll get unanimous agreement on the panel on that point, but it obviously is one of concern to Californians in the immediate future. I think the, one, the only one caveat I would, I would say is that if designed properly, we can do what you're, what well, you're saying. Well, there it is, right to your left, oh. one of the designers. Oh, we're having all kinds of discussions about design. Um, but well, it, you just that, expressed but, great confidence but, in it. But that is very, it is very critical. And I can tell you, I am very concerned, and the governor's office knows this, the resources board knows this, that the low carbon fuel standard is being designed in a way that I feel it will not reach those goals. Not because it can't, but because we can't come together on some very critical pieces of the puzzle. It is going into effect January 1st of, of 2011. It is not ready. It isn't ready because the Air Resources Board isn't working hard at it. They are. It's not ready because we're not in there working hard with them trying to figure it out. Kathy, but, just one second. Define what the low carbon fuel standard is briefly. It is a requirement in, in 
climate change for California, there's two big pieces of, of the law. One is a cap and trade program for, for dealing with the stationary source side. The other is how do you deal with transportation fuels, which is the biggest component of climate change issues in California. The governor issued an executive order called the Low Carbon Fuel Standard, passed in 2009, and it reduces the carbon intensity of fuel 10% by 2020. What does that mean? In simple terms, and don't, don't get into the units, but in simple terms, gasoline is 96 and diesel is 97. You have to reduce that carbon intensity to 86 or 87 over this period of time. That may not sound difficult, but right now there is nothing that we can blend in our fuel in a sufficient quantities to meet these reductions because why? It doesn't exist yet. We hoped cellulosic ethanol would be the big saving grace. Well, in the federal requirement, which is law, this year we were supposed to have 100 million gallons of it. We have six. So what did the federal government have to do? They changed a lot of six. So it, it's a, it has to be in a way that we can actually make, meet the requirements. So we're in there saying not delay it, don't, you know, not, don't do it, but do it right, because there is too much at stake not to do this right. Uh, and uh, we think another year would be uh, probably the amount of time it would take to get this thing um, in, its, in its form. I remember low carbon fuel standard was moved up two years early. It was moved up to 2010. Do any Everything other states else have stands a low carbon fuel standard? Is this, does this exist in any other states? I know there were talks about a national low carbon fuel standard. Is anyone else doing this? Uh, there, there are certainly efforts underway uh, in the uh, northeast states, uh, among others, uh, to develop a low-carbon fuel standard. Um, I, I just wanted to, uh, without getting too into the week, I just wanted to agree with Kathy for the most part uh, about you don't the, have to say that so she has to about the need to get it right. And I mean, we we, we can uh, you know talk about whether or not, in fact, it is it is uh, you know ready to start, and, and I would point out that the low-carbon fuel standard necessarily and purposely uh, 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 starts very gradually. Um, but, but, uh, but I agree, and I mean, it's, we can't get it right without talking to all the affected entities, and, and I think everyone sitting up here would agree that that's something that we do in California very well, particularly at CARB, is we spend a lot of time working with people trying to make these rules work because we know uh, they have to. Virgil Welch is special assistant to the chair of the California Air Resources Board. We're discussing clean energy at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. Our other guests are Kathy Reheis Boyd, president of the Western States Petroleum Association, Ralph Cavana, energy co-director of Natural Resources Defense Council, Jack Stewart, president of the California Manufacturers and Technology Association, and Rod Atleru, who is a managing partner at Draper Fisher Jurvetson. I'm Greg Dalton. Whew, that was a lot. Okay. Um, let's talk about some policies that California has exported uh, to other states. Ralph, tell us about TVs uh, and most recently, well, most recently TVs and also refrigerators. Well, this, one of California's great energy success stories over 30 years now are energy efficiency standards for buildings and equipment. We created them. The authority to adopt them was signed into law by a governor named Ronald Reagan, who I hope is well-remembered in this room and may surprise some in this room as being invoked as the father of efficiency standards. He also signed the federal legislation establishing national efficiency standards model on the California system. Uh, what we've done with efficiency standards over 30 years, the refrigerator is a celebrated example. The average new refrigerator today uses one-fourth as much electricity as the mid-1970s model, costs significantly less, performs significantly better. That story, which is a story of innovation and effective regulation, re remember, regulation using performance standards, not dictating 
what technology to use, but basically saying we want to achieve certain targets by a specified date. You in the private sector go find the best and cheapest way to get there. That model has been proven repeatedly uh, for virtually every form of mass-produced equipment for buildings, both residential and commercial. I note with uh, real appreciation uh, the efforts of my two colleagues to my right and left who have occasionally disagreed with me this evening uh, in supporting policies like that in California and nationally. And I think that one, amazingly enough, the Wall Street Journal decided a week ago to denounce editorially efficiency standards for lighting on the grounds that big government was imposing light bulb choices on the citizenry. And I just want to reassure you all that there is an everything else model on California efficiency standards. It's a performance standard. It doesn't dictate technology. For those of you who love incandescent bulbs, you'll still be able to get them. The difference is that they will give you much more light for much less energy. And on TVs, uh, the manufacturers initially opposed that, but then what was the end result? Well, the, the, uh, this is, I think, one of the great achievements of the Schwarzenegger administration, which was to adopt the world's first efficiency standards for flat screen televisions, which had become a major source, a larger source in many households of electricity use than the refrigerator, except you didn't know because they weren't even labeled as to their energy use. The Schwarzenegger standards will cut the average electricity needs of flat screen TVs by 50% compared to the models. Uh, in mass production at the time the standard was adopted. This was back in the fall of last year. The Consumer Electronics Association told the governor that no televisions would then be available for sale in California, which for Arnold Schwarzenegger is an unnerving prospect. <laughs> and what I can happily tell you all six months later is there are hundreds of complying models that have suddenly flooded the market. It's obvious that the industry is going to meet the standard well ahead of schedule. It's one more illustration of something working well that we've seen work well many times. Jack Stewart, does business cry wolf sometimes about pending regulations? Uh, I, <laughs> cry, cry wolf is <laughs> kind of an odd way to say it, but you know, you know, we, what we look at in industry is, is the cost of manufacturing. How much is going to cost us to, to, to reinvent, to, re, to redo a, a process, uh, and, and, and do it with, with, with either less energy or pr produce a product that, uh, that uses less energy? And when you have to t take on you know, additional new costs, you know, now we don't manufacture very many TVs in California. I don't think we manufacture any TVs in California anymore. We sell a lot of TVs in California. But you know, the, 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 the question is, is how, how do we comply with these, these, this ongoing uh, list of, of, of demands coming out of, uh, out of the government and, and still be able to, to, to operate profitably here in California? You know, we've, we've seen the, the, the consumer electronics industry. We've seen the, uh, the appliance industry disappear out of California. I mean, there's very, very little of that left here anymore. But it's, no, it's, 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 it's because of efficiency no, no, standards. It's, no, it's not, it's not yeah. because of efficiency standards. I mean, California is never going to compete with what, uh, is it Vinod Kosla or Thomas Freeman called the Chindia price, the labor price no, in that, China. No, that's right. Yeah, but, right. You know, one, one, one of the great things about California over time is we've had the innovation in California, which is critical, and, it, and that continues. What has changed in that, in that formula is we used to innovate products here and then develop the manufacturing process here and manufacture them here. Uh, in today's global economy, that's not what's happening. We're innovating here, manufacturing someplace else, and then marketing back to California. And what you do then is you lose the middle class jobs, the factory jobs that, that, that are critical to, to the strength of our economy. And what could anything bring them back? Uh, uh, lower energy costs. Lower energy bills. Lower energy, well, lower energy costs. I mean, I mean, I mean you, you, can't, you can't make a product in, in, in Fontana and the same product in Mississippi, and use, typically use less energy. 
I mean, the fact is, is you, 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 have to, you have to make the, use the energy it acquires to make that product. In your home, you become much more energy efficient. Manufacturers have become significantly more energy efficient. That's the only way you can compete in California. Our, our energy costs, our electricity costs in California are 53% higher than the average of the other states on a per kilowatt basis. So when you're, when you're a manufacturer, if you want to stay competitive, if you want to keep your operation alive and healthy in California, you have to figure out how to do the same amount of work with uh, less energy. And that, that, that we've, we've done that. We've, we've, pushed, we've pushed the envelope on it. And we can do more it. of that. And, and, we, and we, we've actually, you know, the rest of the world has benefited by that because they've adopted our, 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 our energy standards. Our problem is, is we still have energy that's 53% higher per kilowatt than, than the average of what other manufacturers in the United States are paying. Although our statewide energy bill, remember, is 50% lower than the average for the rest of the country as a fraction of our economy. How can both these things be true? Because it really is, Jack, it's the bill in the final analysis that people pay. That, it's it, not it, the unit cost. That's right. And it's a bill. Let's it, work the bill. It's the bill. It's the bill that comes with the factory owner, the factory manager yep. that has to be paid, whether it's in California or whether it's someplace else. Right. The notion that we can't do better than Mississippi on industrial efficiency, Jack, I'm going to dispute no, that. No, we, we do. We're, we're, the, we're the most, I, I would argue that California is the most productive manufacturing industrial economy in the world. And it's, because, and it's largely driven by the, by the cost, of manu, cost of doing business here. But we've, the companies that are still here, companies that are still here have figured out how to do that. Uh, the question is, is can we still can continue to have companies innovate and begin their manufacturing here? Because once, once a product, and this is the history of California, once a product becomes a commodity, uh, and other other countries and other and, and other companies can figure out how to make that, you know, cheaper, better, faster. That those products have always moved offshore or to other states where, where, where labor and other costs are lower. Our problem right now is we we have broken that chain of of new of new industries coming into California for manufacturing. Uh, Greg, you asked the question originally about. Um you know, what policies has California exported? I just wanted to, to uh, raise another one in addition to the efficiency. Uh, vehicles. Um, you know, uh, the Obama administration a couple of years ago adopted uh, national vehicle standards that uh, originated here in California. Uh, they're in the process of adopting a second round. Uh, so what's the result? Well, more efficient cars. And what does that mean? It means that consumers, including California consumers, actually drive further on a tank of gasoline. And that's savings in individual consumers' pockets. So there, there's a, an example where a policy in California moved first to some other states, then to the national government. Now we're in a uh, second round of seeing the same thing because, well, everybody just realized it was both good for cutting carbon and it actually ultimately made sense in terms of people's pocketbooks. Catherine Harris Boyd, was that a good thing? Uh, yeah, I, I guess the one thing I was reflecting on as people were talking is that just to remind ourselves the scale and the, the commercial scale that we're talking here, we have 34 million registered vehicles in the state of California. And we have, at least what I know, we have hydrogen electricity seem to be two of the preferences that the ARB is leaning towards for transportation in the future. And we have at this point in time about I think 500 hydrogen cars in the US. I don't know how many of those are in California. And we have about 15,000 sort of full electric vehicles, um, which is down from 2003, where we had 23. So it was actually, it's actually going the wrong direction. And so I just think, again, as we map out where we're going to go, we can't lose sight of the fact that you know, we're where we are. It took us 150 years to build this infrastructure. 
And to, to transform that into something else, we have to be very careful that we do connect the dots and make sure that we can make that system work as we go forward because there's just so many missing pieces. In the conference, I asked my, my friend, uh, president of Southern Cal Edison, John Fielder, you're going to be the utility that provides this electricity for this transformation into vehicles. You know, are you clear how that's going to work because it's coming pretty fast? And he, he is not clear how it's going to work. None of us are clear how it's going to work. So, you know, we have to look at how the, missing, how the pieces fit together. But how about the national efficiency standards that, that Virgil mentioned that came out of California? Was that a good thing for consumers to drive more efficient cars? Absolutely. We, we have no problem with uh, fuel efficiency standards. And increasing Let's drill down standards. briefly on some taxes and subsidy questions, and then we'll get to uh, audience questions in just about a minute. Uh, so if you'd like to line up uh, in the back there uh, behind uh, that big light in the back, we will... Um, We'll have, uh, invite you to come up and have some audience questions. Comment was made earlier, uh, I think it was Jack Stewart from the California Manufacturers and Technology Association, that incumbents are being penalized and money's being transferred from them to fund uh, startups that, that Raj and other VCs are, are uh, investing in. And there's basically a wealth transfer going on. Uh, is, that, is that a fair uh, characterization, Raj? You know, I, I don't think it's a fair characterization. I think if you're in the energy economy here, you are in some form or another, getting benefits from the government. Traditional energy companies have received $72 billion, and roughly so, mostly in the form of tax credits from 2002 to 2008. And the renewable energy companies have received close to $29 billion, $17 billion of which was in ethanol. So there's only $12 billion in things that you think about as renewable energy, meaning solar, wind, and some energy efficiency technology. So it pales in comparison to the subsidization of traditional energy. And we're doing both for the right reasons, you know, some for security, some for finding new, new, new sources of, of oil, natural gas, and coal, and oil, natural gas, not coal. And for renewables, we're just scratching the, scratching the surface relative to traditional energy. So I don't think it's a fair characterization. I think we've got a policy framework in place to, to put policy to put goals in place for companies to excel to succeed, too. And that's what we're trying to do here with, with the companies we're investing in. Virgil Welch, uh, is, what's your take on that? Is California trying to steer money to startups to develop new technologies to give them a chance to grow and flourish? Well, uh, California actually does have uh, a number of programs uh, that um, uh, are administered to do just that. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, some of which I think uh, have been uh, widely supported by, you know, lots of the folks sitting on the stage. Uh, so I, mean, I think we actually would all agree that it is a good use of money to help you know companies that are doing both things that are innovative and will have economic benefits, but also things that will you know have energy benefits. We, we should be we should be prioritizing our uh, funds on those companies. Kathy, how about about your members? I, you know, I, I think one eighteen funds is what Virgil is referring to, and that is a significant amount of money that is set aside to help in that innovation and development, and we don't have any issues with that fund. Where I have concern is in the design of the low-carbon fuel standard, for instance. You know, we make gasoline and diesel. We have to blend something into those fuels to make them less carbon-intensive by, by the requirements of the law. If there's nothing out there for us to do that, it doesn't mean we're relieved from our obligation to still meet the requirements of the law. So we have to invest dollars into electricity and hydrogen and other things that we don't do. 
And that, to me, is what the 118 funds are. It's to help. <laughs> this 118 is, refers to a California law that was passed directing right, that funds. directs to, that money to help that startup. But it isn't our responsibility because we, we, there is nothing that we can blend in our fuel to make it less carbon intensive because we have the less carbon intensive fuel right now that we have to take those dollars and invest it in things that we don't do as a business model. And that, I don't think, is a good design. So you think government's forcing your hand in, in, yeah. in, in a way that it's not helpful. Um, but your members run the spectrum from small independent companies to large, sophisticated, integrated majors. And is it fair to say that some of them are going to have a harder time with this transition than others? Uh, some are going to kind of stuck to the old ways, and some will maybe uh, flourish and transform themselves from petroleum companies into energy companies. I think all my companies are innovative. Yeah? <laughs> small and large. Okay. Well, and all of them are visibly diversifying away from a pure petroleum focus, which is, I would argue, good for both of them and the country. But I think, Rick, the, the issue of, first of all, research and development, creating new technology, something that uh, I'll, I'll test the limits of consensus on the panel, but if you left that, for example, purely the electric industry, the electric industry in the United States invests less than half of 1% of its total revenues in R&D, which is an astonishingly low number. And there's a pretty strong proven track record of relatively modest, but bigger than that, public sector R&D investment, creating things like the window films that make modern windows possible, like the, uh, some of the refrigerator technology that you and I were talking about earlier. The compact fluorescent <laughs> bulb uh, had its birth in government laboratories, not GE. And a modest amount of publicly funded R&D makes sense, I would hope, for all of us. Even as I would hope, my friend Jack Stewart, who thinks that he's worried that the model is broken. He's worried that in this clean tech area, we get things started in California, we get the innovation, and there's no manufacturing. But Jack, you've got to take some heart again, at least from these brand new published findings of the California Green Innovation Index. That in fact, there is a lot of manufacturing coming in. Now, you challenge me that we've got to keep it here. But it's showing up. This is good news. They'll be your members. Well, if you look at the uh, actually the uh, amount of VC coming into California, and Raj is right, California has, gets uh, it's more than its fair share, and that's traditionally been true. <clears throat> Over the last 15 or 20 years, California has gotten received about 50 percent of all, not quite, but almost 50 percent of all venture capital. But you also have to go back then and look at where manufacturing plants are being cited. Uh, 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 there's a, a, a site selection magazine, which is a national uh, uh, real estate uh, vertical publication, just did a study, a three-year study, of where new manufacturing and plants and startups uh, and exp expansions and startups were going. California is getting 1.3% of, of the national average. Of, of the national, so California is, is, is paying a lot of money to do innovation, which is great and which is, is where we should be. But we need to find a way to make it work. And, you know, although you... you but aren't these new findings heartening to you, Jack? You were just giving... That's, that's well, a national well, survey of studying all kinds of different plants. What this suggests is for clean tech, there is more manufacturing than average. For, and and, it, and, and there, it's coming into California. You can then be skeptical, will it stay? And that's a reasonable... But you can't right. deny it's coming in. This is the good news. Okay, well, Occasionally, you know, you, there's good news, Jack. Okay, well, this is okay. Well, well, well Ralph, I... <laughs> You know, there the may be good news. I haven't read the study you're talking about, so unfortunately I can't argue with you, with you on it. But the fact is, is I, I, the numbers I look at say that California is getting a very small percentage of new manufacturing startups and expansions. And what, 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 you know, maybe all we're getting is the, is, is, is the green tech, and that may be the 1.3% we're getting. But it's certainly <laughs> so not Jack going to be enough to sustain our economy. Sorry to jump in. So, look, I think no matter what, every company that starts here in the clean tech sector is going to build small-scale manufacturing here no matter what. 
you have to align small scale manufacturing with engineering. So if you're doing manufacturing and scaling it up, you need the engineering and product development R&D locally close by. And the question I think you're addressing, which is a fair question, is will these companies keep large scale manufacturing operations in California? And for a lot of reasons, you and I are aligned. You know, it's decreased the, 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 the red tape for getting companies cited here, facilities cited, et cetera, fully aligned. But that's not an answer that you can solve. I think you know, whether it's an IT company, a communications company, a clean tech company, they're going to cite their full-scale manufacturing where it makes most sense. Either it's close to market or it's because it's cheaper labor, whatever it may be. For California, the benefit is a lot of these clean tech products are physically big. You know, they're really big. So transporting from China back to here is not the most ideal thing to do. So if you can localize manufacturing here and optimize it, make it very efficient, make it world class, we can build great manufacturing jobs here, right here in California. Well, I don't see them. I mean, I, I just don't see them happening. I mean, there are anecdotal stories of, 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 of companies that are actually producing a product and, and manufacturing it here. But I hear just, you know, I guess we, you know, some of us look, di look at different news clips, clips are, news clipping services in the morning. But the more, what I see is more companies that are innovating here in manufacturing and in other places. Jack Stewart is president of the California Manufacturers and Technology Association. We've also been talking with Raj Atleru, uh, managing partner at Draper Fisher Jurvetson, and Ralph Cavana, energy co-director at the Natural Resources Defense Council here at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. Promise an audience question. Yes, sir. Yeah, hi, Dan Miller from the Rotor Group. Uh, Part of the discussion sounds like it's going something like this. We, we need to address climate change, but we want to make sure we don't put additional burden on consumers in the form of increased prices for fuel and electricity. But as Dr. Hansen probably going to say, is going to say on Thursday, if we don't address climate change in a very real and substantial way very quickly, our children are going to, are going to face utter catastrophe. Not our grandchildren, but our children. So my question is, is it a fair to characterize it this way of trying to avoid burdens on current, our current generation in return for putting them on the future generations? Um, let me take a crack at that. Uh, there's increasing evidence, I think, um, that uh, the impacts of climate are going to be uh, probably sooner than you know, was originally um, known, uh, even, you know, five, ten years ago. Um, I, I think uh, what we've got to do in California, uh, because if we're going to actually, as a society, deal with this issue, is we've got to show that we can do this in a way that works economically. And this discussion here obviously indicates that people have different perspectives and, and different sort of concerns. But I, I don't think there's any question that if we're going to do this, California has to show that the economic benefits of doing this are equally important. Because if, if we can't show that, then we're not going to ultimately see these policies that we're developing here exported. We saw the efficiency one exported because it's a good policy. We saw the vehicle one exported because it's a good poly policy. We're seeing more renewable standards uh, sprout up across the state because of good policies. So. We can do it in a way that makes economic sense, and I think we have to continue to show that we can if we're going to really deal with it. And I think history has shown that the most environmental improvements made are when the economy is strong. 
So I, I think we have to do both. But I think the question was not just about the environment. It's about people and their ability to lead the lifestyle that they currently enjoy in the places with their waterfront homes and the level of things that... And it's making the point that inaction carries its own costs, and that often in these debates we act as if there were a cheap status quo alternative that could be painlessly followed indefinitely. And I think you're right that what Jim Hansen is going to powerfully remind us next week is that there are formidable risks associated with not acting aggressively in the face of not just the climate challenge but also the oil dependence issues. Uh, that haven't figured as much in this discussion, but certainly have a place in it as well. Next question, please. Well, a little bit of a devil's advocate. On my way over this evening on BART, <clears throat> I picked up my recent Newsweek uh, that had an interview by George Will of Rex Tillerson, who's the uh, CEO of uh, ExxonMobil. And he uh, says that uh, in, in response to the uh, peak oil theory, uh, he estimates that the world has used probably less than half of the recoverable oil. In fact, he estimates we'll probably never exhaust the world's supply. Um, Let's get lot. Kathy retired. Can we get Kathy to respond to is your question yeah. about peak oil? Yeah, sure. I mean, that, okay. that is a correct statement. The problem is we don't own it. And so as much as we would like to, we have to deal with the fact that there are other people who own these sources. And so for unfriendly people, unfriendly people, not like our friends in Canada, for instance, which we discussed earlier. So, you know, Saudi Arabia, Canada, they hold the crude oil. We don't. So he's correct. There is a lot of it. But who owns it and how do we make sure that we can um, sustain ourselves as a nation? And that is everything with using all of our domestic resources, reducing our dependent on foreign oil, diversifying into all of these other things. It's a combination of all of that. Kathy Reheis Boyd is president of the Western States Petroleum Association. We're discussing clean energy here at the Commonwealth Club. Yes, sir. My name is Ralph Sackman. I'm retired after a career in systems. I have um, three, three questions. One How about pick, pick one, please? <laughs> pick one. Okay, I will. One question. Would you please comment on the fact I heard that China exports 95% of its solar and renewables production and that they are building a nuclear city to develop all, all aspects of, of nuclear, including small, medium-sized reactors the size of Buffalo, New York. Raj, do you invest in China? You want to take that one? Yes. Yeah, so, so China right now exports the majority of its solar, uh, more to Europe than the United States, but that, that, that is true. They uh, consume, most, most of their wind is domestic. They're not expect exporting wind technology. They're, they're now equal to the United States in terms of wind production capacity put in place last year. And so most of that is domestic. So they're, they're effectively uh, building a domestic wind industry uh, with policy frameworks. The, the solar policy framework is not in place yet, and so I think that will change over time. But the, the first part's true. Rod Jatler is a managing partner at Draper Fisher Jurvetson. Next question, yeah, please. What, oh, yeah. Can nuclear, I yeah, briefly nuclear. on that? The, the, uh, the, the nuclear is, and I'm often asked, why can't we be more like China, France, and Russia in our nuclear power embrace? And I usually ask that, that question not by you, but by people who really aren't excited about China, Russia, and uh, the, the, the France for any other economic purpose. The point is that China makes these decisions through the central government. Uh, in the United States, we make decisions about electricity generation through competitive procurement by utilities, most of them investor-owned, like PG&E. 
Uh, and the reason we're different so far uh, is that the nuclear proponents haven't been able to make the case in the competitive marketplace where everyone else has to function and where many of the investors represented on my left are constantly looking for winners and losers. That's the arena in which that's going to get played out in the United States, and I think most of you wouldn't have it any other way. Just, just, one, correct, just one observation there is that uh, China doesn't make all their decisions through the central government, but that's where we're tending, the nuclear to, decisions. That, that's where we're tending to go as well, is making more and more of our decisions through the, <laughs> through, through, through the government. Not electric generation. Ralph Cavan is Energy Co-Director at Natural Resources Defense Council. We also heard from Jack Stewart, President of California Manufacturers and Technology Association. Next question, please. Hi, I work in um, permitting of transmission lines and power plants, and whoever wants to tackle this one can. It's related to kind of manufacturing. But the cumbersome permitting process of California uh, puts us at a disadvantage to develop these solar wind uh, areas. And my concern is out-of-state sources, Arizona and Nevada, are saliv salivating at the glands to build these and deliver it to them. Are they going to outcompete us for these sources? Do we have to worry about it? And how do we compete with that? Ralph Kavan, let's toss that to you, because a lot of the reason it's so hard is because environmentalists get in the way of these things. Uh, I think that it is fair to expect environmentalists who want more renewable energy to support the transmission they needed to get it to market. Uh, and I'll tell you, fortunately, I, I guess I could be flip and say that Arizona and uh, Utah can be every bit as obstructionist as California in transmission siting in, pursu in pursuing their own parochial interests. But the unflip way of responding is that we need regional transmission planning, that increasingly now we're getting it. The United States has the most aggressive and ambitious regional transmission efforts underway in both the East and the West in its history at this moment. Environmental groups are participating. That doesn't mean there won't always be someone who objects to a transmission line wherever you put it, because that has always been true. But I think you will see a lot more transmission siting happen. You are already seeing it in California. We're opening up the Tehachapi, for example, which is the biggest wind resource in the southern part of the state, through transmission lines that environmental groups are supporting. This is going to be hard for many of us. We're going to face opponents at the local level who accuse us of inflicting our <coughs> national and regional aims on their cherished local resources. And we can't stop siting carefully. But I take your point and accept it, that there's going to have to be significant transmission enhancement in order to get renewables on the scale we've been discussing on this panel. I, agree I can with say Ralph. I feel your pain. <laughs> I agree with Ralph. So Ralph, you're saying that environmentalists are going to be flexible and you're going to take some heat for it? Enhancement of the transmission grid, which doesn't mean they're going to want transmission lines everywhere. But yes, and you are already seeing it. And as you know, that's a challenge. The places where you have wind and the places you have solar, right. the sun, are not the places where people live. Jack, we're we, opening we need up to the Tehachapi. We're going to open up sites in the Mojave. Environmental groups are going to support them. And I know you'll be standing um, there I, right I, with I, me. I know it's going to do me no good, whatever. I, 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 I hope you and I can be there to cut the ribbon. <laughs> I, I really do. To flip the switch or whatever, whatever we do. Whatever we do. But that is bring up the local communities are a very, you know, we, we have to do a better job reaching out to the local communities because even, you know, biorefineries, um, which are, you know, classified as green refineries, are having a very difficult time getting cited. So it's a, it's a problem for all industries in, in California, and I continue to believe we could be a lot more business friendly and how we go about it. I would uh, just quickly add that uh, Governor Schwarzenegger uh, has made the siding issue uh, a real priority for this, yep. his administration. Uh, I mean, you know, he's recognized it's an issue. He's, he's personally spent time focusing on it because it's critical. And by the end of this year, the Schwarzenegger administration will have cited, I think, as much renewable capacity in California as now exists in California, which is a remarkable achievement. 
We have to wrap up here quickly. We've got a couple minutes left. Let's uh, touch on cap and trade. We haven't really touched on on cap and trade yet. It's one of the key policies, potentially nationally and, and regionally. Uh, Kathy Reheist Boyd, do you think cap and trade will happen here in the Western United States or with California at the lead? It'll happen in California in December because that's when they're going to adopt it. Um, we are working very hard on a design that we think will work for our companies, and we're talking to the Air Resources Board about that. I think every I mean, cement and every other utilities are trying to design a system that can work for them. We're a lot farther along on cap-and-trade than we are on the low-carbon fuel standard. So um, I think we can design a program that works. I think it's important that we have one for several reasons. One in particular, um, EPA has the Environmental Protection Agency on the federal side, has regulations that are going to be imposed on states. And if those states cannot demonstrate that they have a program, like a cap-and-trade program, to push back on that, um, we'll be forced into much more of a command and control prescriptive direction. So there's lots of reasons why this cap-and-trade piece has to work well. And will it be regional? I mean, there's the western states with uh, some Canadian states. Will it be just California? Will it if also it's be- just California, it will not work. Well, okay. Let me speak to that since, of course, the Air Resources Board is uh, the agency that's charged with... Virgil Welch with the Air Resources Board, yes. Uh, with with uh, developing the regulation, and as Kathy noted, uh, we do intend to bring it to our board uh, in December for adoption. The, the program would actually not um, begin until 2012, and I think you've hit on a, a, an important point here, which is... You know, uh, uh, California is actually working with uh, what is referred to as the Western Climate Initiative, even though it includes Ontario uh, and, um, uh, you know, folks who clearly aren't uh, in the western part of North America, but uh, a number of western states and Canadian provinces as a a regional effort to uh, create a market um, that, you know, is going to drive innovation uh, in cleaner technologies. And so... um, we are looking at 2012, and we will be continuing to work closely with, with our partners in the region. Um, and, you know, we, we actually think uh, many of the states and provinces will be ready to go by then as well. Real quick closing. Let's, Jack Stewart, putting a price on carbon by this cap-and-trade, is that okay with your members? Uh, that, that is a huge problem. And, you know, Ralph got a plug-in for no on uh, uh, California's Proposition 23. That is the, the reason we support Proposition 23 in California, suspension of AB 32 a temporary suspension of AB32 until the cap-and-trade program can be spread to a a much larger market. Uh, And actually, suspending AB32 will only affect... California's climate... California's climate change law will only affect uh, low-carbon fuel fuel standard and uh, and the cap-and-trade system. Virtually everything else is controlled by other laws, other regulations, other bodies, and we will get... To, I wish it were clear. We're, we're getting, I wish we're, it were clear. We're, we're, we're if getting, only Jack had written it. We're, 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 you know, I wish I would have. I wish I, I wish I could have had that opportunity. <laughs> but the, the, the fact is, is that we get 75 to 80 percent of our goals for 2020 without AB 32. And what we're asking is just a timing issue. I think Ralph and I both see a clean energy future for our grandchildren. The question is, is what inconvenience, what economic uh, distortion do we give to our children in the meantime? So let's figure out how we get there in a, in a reasonable time frame. Jack Stewart's president of the California Manufacturing Technology Association. Raj Alaru, price on carbon, is that going to be a good thing for the companies that you're investing venture capital? Yeah, I think the, the, <clears throat> the real thing is having certainty. And so if we have a price on carbon, then our companies know where to target. And so anytime the policy frameworks are certain and long, anytime there's a price on carbon that we know that our renewable energy resources or technologies can, can benefit from, then you have a target to go after. Right now it's uncertain. So we're, we're assuming that no price in carbon will be there in the future. And if it does happen, that's, 
that's beneficial to these companies. So you want cap and trade in this Western system to, to, to put a trade on it. Even though the price will fluctuate, at least you know there'll be a price through a mechanism that mechanism, you Yeah, that we can look at. We have to end it there. Raj Atlaru is managing partner at Draper Fisher Jurvinson. We've also heard from Virgil Welch, special assistant to the chair of the California Air Resources Board. Kathy Reheis Boyd, president of the Western States Petroleum Association. Ralph Cavana uh, is energy co-director at the Natural Resources Defense Council. And Jack Stewart is president of the California Manufacturers and Technology Association. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you all coming to Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. Thank you.